be here for the first time at this camp meeting. Oh, there are a few. It is a delightful place. Thank you very much for including us. We're already with an early morning bedtime and nice sunshine this morning. We're already having a good time. So by the time we catch up on our sleep with a nap this afternoon, we'll be doing great. Uh, Here's what our intention is today through Friday morning. Uh, We want to talk a bit about uh, how we as Christian people, followers of Jesus, how we cope with times that are difficult for us. Can we move from the disappointments and losses in life and still maintain some kind of confidence and hope for the future? That's what That's what's behind it. You all come to this kind of subject with your own stories. I don't know that I have ever met a human being who hasn't had some experience in which they have lost something that was important to them. A job, a family member, a close friend, an opportunity about which they dreamed, uh, something that they wanted to accomplish and were not able to. We all have those setbacks in life, don't we? So regardless of what those losses are, the fact that we experienced that loss places us all on very familiar and shared ground. We know what it feels like to have to give up something we badly wanted. Barbara and I uh, this morning are going to talk about a pivotal, for us, uh, experience of loss. And we share that story not because it's the only story in the world. We know you all have your own experiences. But for us, this is what brought this subject uh, into focus. I I would wish, too, that um, as a pastor for years and uh, both of us as Christians for our lifetime, we were born to Adventist Christian families, I would wish that we would have had this all figured out in just the way that it seems to fit now before these losses came. But the truth is, uh, experience raised questions for us that we had not faced before and pushed us towards some responses that in some senses were a bit surprising. And particularly on Friday, I'll talk a bit about those and um, how the whole notion of forgiveness and letting go of those disappointments and the people who may have had a part in precipitating those, uh, handing them to us, how we deal with that. And some of that subject for me is a new approach that I've not found in um, broadly written about in other people's writings as well. Much of the rest of what we'll share with you will be very familiar, and it'll be an opportunity, hopefully, for a useful review for you of things that you may have heard about and could apply to the situations in your own life. Okay? I'm ready to pray, and let us begin. Lord God, we begin this morning a conversation with one another uh, in company of others who are interested in following you, in understanding your will and way with us, in the company of other believers who hope for a better world in the future, as we stare at and experience the disappointments in life and as we relive those this morning, I pray that you will, through the Spirit and the angels that you promise, guard and watch over us, will be among us here to give us a a sense of healing and comfort even in our uncomfortable times. Through Jesus we are grateful to be able to come and pray to you. Amen. You're going to let me talk now? Mm. <laughs> I thought it might be appropriate to introduce ourselves. You've seen the brochure, but Daryl Bigger, my husband, uh, for many years have, was pastor. In fact, we pastored in Southern California for a time. That's true. In fact, we met some people who yes. uh, followed up. 
what we had a tiny little bit of. Yeah. One of the churches we pastored was in Crestline, up in the mountains out of Loma Linda. Yeah. Uh, that and was this couple time. who make the tour of camp meetings in the summer, it sounds like, <laughs> from our breakfast conversation, uh, live there now. Yeah. And then we ended up at La Sierra for five years, I guess it was, and Daryl was on the staff there. So, And we, we, we have members of that congregation yes, with us, too, who helped, the who helped train us while we were there. <laughs> and apparently they did a good enough job that they sent us on to uh, Walla Walla, and we've been there now since 1980. So it's been a long, long time. And after Daryl pastored there for many years, and we had one other pastor in between, then Carl Hafner came on board. And I felt really old by then because his dad was my pastor in Montana when I was in high school. (laughs) And I thought, hmm, pastored by a father and a son. I must be getting ancient. But, um, in fact, Carl was born in my, what I call my hometown in Montana. So, big family circle here, and that's wonderful. And I am Barbara, and I hail from Montana mostly. That's what I call home, even though I'm northeast, little town called Plentywood. You from Montana? Oh, you know people there. Plentywood is out way out in the northeast corner of Montana where there is not a tree... <laughs> For hundreds of miles. We think somebody found enough sticks for a campfire one night and called it Plenty Wood. That, that is really the, le- the, the tradition there that, <laughs> that, the, that happened. So it's, it's a fun place to have been from, and I still, I still call it home, but I'm not sure I'd want to live there again. <laughs> uh. We want to share with you, as Gerald said, our experience and what us brought us to this subject of forgiveness. And we've always had hope. But the forgiveness part was a little difficult and unusual for us. And it centers around our eldest daughter. We had two girls, and Shannon was the older one. We want to let you get acquainted with her a little bit before we tell our story so that you put a face with this name. Uh, the, the video clip that we're going to show you is prepared for her funeral service. Uh, by some of her colleagues at Walla Walla. She was a communications major, so some of her professors and friends put this video together that we thought was appropriate. They didn't have a lot to work with, (laughs) you know, home videos and some footage from uh, a kid's church, and I don't know where they got that. wasn't ours, I don't think, but... Anyway, we, if you want to move in so you can see this a little better, it's, what, five minutes? or I don't remember. It's not very long. <laughs> but we're going to try to make this work as best we can with the lighting that we have here.
Shannon? This is Shannon. She's sitting with a whole group of friends, and one of their friends has the chicken pox and can't be here, and they hope she gets better soon. Oh, that'd be good for everyone. Tina, where are you, young lady? Uh-oh. You hear that little lady part? That means trouble. Come in here, Mom. Tina, I cannot believe the way you acted towards your Aunt Matilda when she came.
and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, after you set all this TV set up here, how hard would it be for us to put it back on that table so that we wouldn't have this barrier between us while we talk? All right, any two strong backs? I just meant the TV set, but the whole table went. That's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon graduated from Walla Walla College. At that time, it was college. In 1995. Seems so long ago. (laughs) Fifteen years, wow. Um... That Sunday, uh, well, right soon after her graduation, uh, my side of the family had a family reunion in Montana at Mount Ellis. And then from there, she and I drove back to Maryland, where she had obtained a paid internship at Washington Adventist Hospital in their philanthropy department. I never could understand how I had a child who wanted to raise money. I didn't even like to go in-gathering, if any of you remember those days. <laughs> but uh, she had found her niche, and uh, we headed back to Washington. Had a wonderful trip back there. Um, the following year, in 1996, now this is, on Father's Day, we were in Portland, Oregon. Daryl was performing the wedding of two of Shannon's friends, and I was taking notes per her instructions, you know, write down all the colors and what the flowers looked like and all that kind of thing. And I really was taking notes for her. And we didn't get home until late Sunday night. Our other daughter, Hillary, was actually at home in Walla Walla, and another wedding. <laughs> so it was a day for weddings that year. And we spent uh, Monday then trying to kind of catch up, and Daryl and I were both at work when I got a phone call from our then campus chaplain, John Cress. And he said, I have a personal matter of some urgency. I need you to come to my office right now. And I thought, what in the world could this be? My thought was that something in his family had happened, but I didn't know why he would call me. So that didn't make a lot of sense. But I said, yes, I can come right now. I arrived at his office first. And when I got there, I discovered that he had made a similar call to Daryl, and we were waiting for him to come. And when he ca- when he called me, um, I was packing things up in my office because I was moving to another building to be the acting dean of the School of Theology that summer. And he called and said, I want to talk to you right away. I have a matter of some urgency that we, we need to deal with. And I said, I'm just moving over to the theology department. Can you? Can we set an appointment for this afternoon? And he said, no, I need to talk to you right now. So I, I, I was a little uh, nonplussed, actually, and puzzled, and it disoriented my morning to have to go to his office first. But I walked over uh, several hundred yards across campus. And when I walked into his office, Barbara was sitting there, and that was a surprise to me. And while I was waiting for Daryl to come, I was trying to chit-chat with John about this wedding we had done in Portland, because these were students that he had known too. And he was just very quiet and strange acting, I thought. So I kind of was quiet after that, and he said, I'm sorry, but I just can't talk right now. So I just sat in silence waiting for Daryl. It seemed like a very long time, but I'm sure it wasn't. And when Daryl came in, 
I don't remember that John said anything until he just walked around his desk at that point and stood in front of us and said, I have the worst possible news I could share with you. Shannon has been killed. And in that instant, I envisioned a car accident. I knew in my mind where the intersection was because it was a five-way stop where she drove to work every day. And I thought people in Maryland drove like crazy people because they'd go through yellow lights. And I just envisioned this pileup. And I wondered how many cars were involved and how many other people were killed. And all that went through my mind in the instant between him saying, Shannon has been killed and the word murdered in her apartment. And that I couldn't wrap my mind around. I was in such stunned shock that I didn't even cry at that time. And it sort of felt like the blood just drained out of me. I couldn't fathom that that would happen. I didn't know anybody who had ever experienced murder in their family. It's only something you saw on TV. But uh, they had very carefully arranged things for us, which we were grateful for. The detectives back in Maryland and the police were on kind of standby, willing to talk to us. And John asked us if we wanted to talk to them, you know, to verify this. Surely it had to be a mistake. (laughs) And I didn't want to talk to anybody, but... Daryl was willing. (laughs) And of course, I wanted to know everything they said when he hung up, but I didn't want to do the talking. Do you want to talk about that? No. When we got off the phone, or Daryl got off the phone, it was very obvious that there had not been a mistake. It was really our daughter. She had been found that Monday morning, and my cousin, who lived back, lives back there, and her husband and two kids uh, were trying to reach Shannon, actually, uh, from Friday or Sunday night through Monday morning and didn't get any response when they called her. They had spent all day Sunday together, and uh, Ava, my cousin's daughter, and Shannon were going to spend some time together because Shannon was getting ready to move home. Well, not home, but to the northwest. That was close enough to be home. She actually had gotten a position at Gem State Adventist Academy. So they tried to reach Shannon Sunday night. No answer. They thought it was odd that her answering machine didn't come on. But didn't paid too much attention to it, so we waited till Monday morning, and Ava tried to call her again, and still no answer. Then they called her work. No, she had not come into work. That, that was a bit unusual. It was very unusual. So they called Dad, my cousin's husband, and he said, would you go and check on Shannon? He went to her apartment complex which had one driveway only and there were what are there three buildings mm-hmm. in that complex um, and he saw her car was there went up to her door and it was slightly ajar and he said I didn't want to go in but I felt compelled and he got inside and it was kind of a mess because she was packing you know there were boxes and stuff around and no sign of Shannon but he went then back into her bedroom and saw that her bed was a little rumpled and thought, oh good, she just didn't make her bed. And then he saw her arm below the bed covers. And he pulled back the sheets just enough to be sure it was her. And he said he just fled and went down to the office and told the lady there what had happened. And of course, Police were called, and he said it was like they dropped out of the sky. They were just there almost instantly, it seemed. Let's go back to the office. Yeah. Um, Like Barbara, I was stunned and shocked when uh, John said this. 
uh, and talking to the police officers in Maryland was uh, both helpful and miserable. They didn't describe many details at that point uh, because it was still early in their own investigation and they didn't have solutions to what had happened. Uh, But they knew they had found her. Um, Later, uh, it became apparent to us that many people had uh, been thoughtful in planning for this announcement to us and our being invited to John's office with whom we had worked for several years there in the church and on campus uh, was part of their way of uh, being certain that we weren't by ourselves and were taken care of I I don't remember thinking about much of anything uh, for a while but you started uh, sequencing who needs to know? What do we need to do next? All of that. Uh, I, I felt like my mind just sort of went blank. And the, 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 that points out one of the things that we found in us after that period of trauma, that it made some significant um, personality changes in us. Uh, ever since we first got acquainted, I have been the one who has been the primary talker. Um, it's a bit of an indictment on myself now that uh, I, I realized that even while I was dating in college, I knew that I wanted to marry someone who was a good listener. <laughs> See, you get it. I didn't get it at the time. Uh, I heard someone describe one time people with personalities like mine. He said that if you ask this sort of person a question, they will start to talk, assuming they'll get to the answer before they finish. Um, And so I I was always full of words. Barbara, on the other hand, uh, was often a very quiet person. Sometimes after periods of silence, I would say to her, what are you thinking about? And her answer was, long silence, a long silence. And finally, a few words. Because, she said, she thinks in pictures, not in words. If you ask me what I'm thinking about in a period of silence, I will start in the middle of the sentence that's going through my mind at that second. But when that announcement came, the words were just gone from me. And I spent months having nothing to say. And I find even now, um, when we remember that story, that similar things begin to happen to me. Like now. Like now. <laughs> I became the talkative one, and Daryl became quiet, and it's been quite an adjustment for both mm. of us. Mm-hmm. And our daughter that's alive, she said, we thought we thought we were you know, kind of back to normal, and about a year ago I said, I think we're doing pretty good again, and she said, no, 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 no. <laughs> She still sees a big change. But anyway, let's get back to our story. Mm-hmm. You started thinking about what we needed to do. And I did. I, w- I knew I was trying to think of how we would tell people. I mean, this was a major catastrophe in, my, in our minds, of course, and we knew it would affect a lot of people. For one thing, I was at work, and I was responsible for several employees, and I wasn't going back, so they needed to know. I knew I would be gone for some time, and I didn't know how long. My parents had just moved to College Place by Walla Walla. They didn't even have a telephone yet, so they needed to be notified. Daryl's parents were in Medford, Oregon, so they needed to be notified. He has siblings. I'm an only child, but... He has siblings, so we needed to let them know. And all of this was going through my mind, 
and I maybe it was a way of coping so that I had control of something because suddenly I had control of nothing. We did uh, have our, another pastor joined us in John's office that morning, Henning Goldhammer, who'd been on our staff for many years and is a good friend, and he was our chauffeur. He knew that we would not be able to drive ourselves anywhere. We couldn't think clearly. The, things like that they had thought through. I thought it was wonderful. We were so well taken care of. So we went to my parents. Actually, before we left John's office, we had kind of an outline. I went to my office first and told one of the gals to touch everyone out, get in contact with everyone else I needed to have a quick meeting. And one of the employees came, and I heard her saying, what in the world could be so important? We have to stop in the middle of the day. And she was in the middle of a project and wanted to get that finished, and she was quite a go-getter person. Well, when we all gathered together and I shared with them what had happened, you know, they were in total shock. They had watched Shannon grow up from the time she was about 11. I had worked at the college store. So they knew this young lady pretty well. We then went to my parents' place. They had moved to Walla Walla on, the, on Shannon's birthday just five days before, on June 11. And she was killed on Father's Day, my dad's birthday, on June 16. This was really tough news for them. Uh, but as we look back on it, we know now for years I'd tried to get my folks to come and live closer to us. They were getting on in years a bit, and I thought it was time that we lived near each other. Well, they hadn't thought so, <laughs> but I'd finally convinced them. And you know, the Lord's timing was just perfect because we needed each other desperately. And... My mom took it the hardest, I think. She um, and Shannon had a real special bond. They enjoyed the same things, and Shannon's middle name was named after my mom, Shannon Marie. And uh, this was really, really tough on her. And sometime later, she actually uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And my dad has always said that Shannon's killer actually killed two people. There's no history in my mom's family of cancer. But that, I think, triggered that terrible, terrible disease. Then we got home. Um, Finally, we made it home. (laughs) Seemed like a long time. And... our, da- our other daughter, Hillary, was ready to start summer school that day. And she had just showered and was getting ready to get ready for school. And, of course, we had to tell her. She had almost complete disbelief and didn't show a lot of emotion at that point, which I thought was a bit odd, <laughs> Although I knew she and Shannon were very, very different and didn't get along very well when they were under the same roof for any period of time. You know, they did much better with Shannon, Maryland, and Hillary in Washington. Then they had to talk and, you know, get on the phone and write letters. And there were no cell phones in in those days. (laughs) But uh, her her reaction was kind of quiet which she is anyway. She's a very private person, and she just went to her room, spent time by herself. We had the college president and a couple of vice presidents who had actually come to the door before we got home, and Hillary asked them if they wanted to come in, and no, they didn't. They said they'd wait outside in the car. She thought that was extremely odd, but they did wait, and they were right there when we got home. It was just amazing to us that 
the flood of phone calls that started and people at the door, you know, the, it just seemed like it was nonstop. We could hardly think and make plans and decide what to do next. But the pastors stayed with us, which was a wonderful thing for us. Uh, one of the vice presidents, who is now a pastor at Azure Hills, John Brunt, a uh, dear friend of ours, and he and his secretary actually came and stayed at our house for hours. And John was Daryl's personal valet, <laughs> is the way you put it, I think. And his secretary took messages so we didn't have to answer the phone. One of my regrets is that Daryl's folks called us before we could call them, and they had already heard it. But that's the way it happened, so we couldn't change that. But I was sorry that we couldn't be the first ones to break the news to them. Say some more about Maryland, what was happening back there. Now, back in Maryland. Monday morning. Actually, um, the police were very, very attentive to every detail. They, they obviously wanted to catch this person. The detectives uh, were on the scene, and the police had told my cousin, who found Shannon, that he would be questioned. Of course, he was a person of interest. He had found her. And they said, you know, you need to be prepared. It may not be real pleasant. But the detectives were very, very kind to him, and fortunately they believed him. I've always been grateful for that. They watched surveillance footage from the entrance to Shannon's apartment complex. There's only, as I said, the one entrance. Here's a big sign right there. It's about that long, literally that says surveillance and a camera mounted on it. So it wasn't too bright to be driving in and out of there at that point. Um, They watched that footage, saw a white van on there that didn't belong in the complex, and they got the license plate from that footage and decided, and they also went around to neighbors and asked if they had seen this van, and yes, they had, and they had seen a guy going in and out of Shannon's apartment. They assumed that she had sold some of her stuff. They knew she was moving and that he had bought some stuff, so he was moving it into his van. Um, The license plate... They tracked, of course, and discovered that it did not belong to a van. It belonged to another vehicle entirely. So the license plate had been... Stolen. Stolen and put on a different vehicle. They went to the area of uh, Washington, D.C., in the northern part of the city, where the license plate belonged, where the registered car was, and just began driving the streets and did that hour after hour after hour hoping to find uh, something that would connect them to this van. And it was in the wee hours of the morning that they were going to give up. This is kind of hopeless. And if any of you have been in Washington, D.C., you know one of the major streets is Georgia Avenue. And they were on Georgia, or pulling up to it, I guess. I don't know exactly, but it was a an intersection with Georgia Avenue and sitting for waiting for a red light to change and a white van pulled up beside them they waited for it to go ahead and sure enough there is the license plate they were looking for of course these were Maryland police and they were in the district so they got a patrol car from the District of Columbia to pull over the van and question the driver who said he knew nothing about what had happened. He was in partnership in crime with another person who had used the van on Sunday um, to pull a caper, he said. And he said, I don't know what that caper was or was going to be. But he, they had not changed the license plate, and they were one of them was supposed to have, but they didn't get done. 
So they did find the person. He said, I'll tell you who was driving the van that day. They got a search warrant and went into the home of Anthony Robinson, who lived with his mother. He was kind of in the basement part. And they found him watching Shannon's television set. Uh, They found several of her personal items there, things that were odd to me, like her Walla Walla College video yearbook. Why would he want that? He apparently just grabbed things. Anyway, they took him into custody, and to make a long story short, he has not been out since. He did plead guilty to three counts. He was charged with first-degree murder, which is premeditated, uh, attempted sex sexual, no, attempted sex offense, which I didn't know what that meant, but it meant that he did not plead, he would not admit to any sexual offense, and they couldn't prove rape, but the way she was found, it was obvious that was his intent, and armed robbery. So he was, he pled guilty to all three counts, which I thought was really bizarre at first, but that was to avoid the death penalty, which the state's attorney said he wanted to seek if, if we would allow that. So he pled guilty to all three and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the murder, plus another life sentence for that attempted sex offense and another 20 years for the armed robbery. So this young man, who was only 23 at the time, is never going to be a free man again. He is in Jessup, Maryland, in a state penitentiary, but he's in the part for mental illness, although he seems apparently to be able to reason and think and all that kind of thing, but he is medicated much of the time. Well, he's medicated for bipolar disorders. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It isn't that he's schizophrenic or no. incapable of reasoning. It's a mood disorder. The dilemma uh, remained with us even after that Tuesday when he was uh, found and charged. The dilemma remained for us as to... Uh, what would happen with Shannon? We felt so isolated and apart from her um, and already uh, had feelings of guilt that we weren't there to protect her. You know, you have this sense of being committed to take care of your children. In our extended family, a niece and her husband have just had a death uh, in the last week. Uh, Her husband's brother drowned and this brother of the surviving brother is struggling with those feelings of guilt now because he wasn't there if he had been at the river with him he would have saved him uh, those kinds of uh, feelings of guilt similar things came to us if, if we had been there maybe she would have been okay and now we're still not there and she's back there all by herself and what's happening and uh, it, and there was a lot of turmoil as well because um, since this was a crime scene and her body was part of that the coroner uh, had taken custody. She wasn't sent to a funeral home. And there was no clear definition as to when the coroner would release her body to a funeral home. Um, so we didn't know what to do to plan for services or burial or any of that for some time. And that seemed to perpetuate the turmoil and uncertainty uh, for me. We did plan to bring her home. That was kind of a given, and yet it was difficult to really decide because we knew that we needed to do some sort of a service at her church in Silver Spring, Maryland, because they she'd been there for almost a year and was very involved in her church. Um, but do we bring her home? Do we have one there first and then bring her home? And, oh, my, it just seemed like never-ending questions. But we did bring her home to be buried at Walla Walla College Place, actually. 
up on the hill overlooking her church and her old academy. But it's a beautiful place. And when we needed to bring her home or decided to, we knew that we wanted to meet her. And she was being flown into Tri-Cities, which is about an hour's drive or 45 minutes from our home. So John Brunt, again, volunteered to take us over there. And then we were going to ride in the hearse home with her. And when we got there, watching the plane, on you know, all the people the plane, and all the luggage comes off, and it just seemed like we should go into the terminal. <laughs> Instead, we waited and waited, and finally a white wedge-shaped box came off. It was put on the back of a golf cart and sent bouncity-bouncity-bouncing over the tarmac to the cargo area. And that just seemed so wrong to have our girl go to the cargo area. And on the other hand, it was a little bit humorous because Shannon loved rides at roller coasters and stuff, and I thought, you know, she would think this was the funniest thing in the world if she could see what was happening. But it was extremely traumatic, actually. We decided uh, to ride home in the front seat of the hearse uh, from the airport, which was about mm, 45 or 50 minutes away uh, from the funeral home. Uh, The funeral home director was driving. Barbara was in the middle. I was uh, on the passenger side. And on the way home, um, I would reach out and put my arm around Barbara and then reach back behind the seat and touch the box where Shannon was. And it was, uh, it was tantalizingly close and yet so far away. <clears throat> A draining uh, and very reflective time. One of the things uh, that our family discussed at some length and with the state's attorney in Maryland, I presume you all know more than we did, but with crimes like this, it's always the state that prosecutes the criminal. It's not the victims who do that. So it wasn't our family charging Anthony uh, with murder. It is the state of Maryland who uh, prosecutes that case. Uh, The state's attorney uh, was in regular phone conversation with us, and then sometime later uh, there was a convention in Portland, Oregon, and he drove the four hours to Walla Walla, because before the sentencing, he wanted to see where Shannon had lived, where she grew up, just get acquainted with that setting uh, in preparation for the meetings with the judge. During all of that time, our daughter Hillary was particularly insistent, and others of us were interested as well, in seeing reports. In seeing reports from the coroner. And um, in seeing some of the crime scene photos, which were taken by the police. Uh, We have found it's been important for us uh, to face the stark reality that life um, holds up to us, rather than avoid or run away from that. And at that time, that seemed important to us. The state's attorney tried repeatedly to encourage us not to do that. He said that um, very seldom do people want to relive the horrors of those times. Uh, The police had already given us some sense of comfort by saying that in Shannon's apartment there was no sign of struggle. 
which made them think that she was probably, the phrase they used was rendered unconscious very early so that she did not uh, apparently suffer. There's no indication of that. And they were hoping that would be enough reassurance uh, to us. But at our request, <laughs> uh, Hillary, our younger daughter, is a um, um, very persistent person. You hear of strong-willed children? <laughs> Cheap bits. <laughs> yeah, she's the subject of the book. Um, she asked the attorney on the phone, are you saying we do not have a right to see this information or that you don't think we should see it? Well, he had to admit that we had a right to these things. So when he came from Portland, he brought copies for us, uh, still hoping that he would take them back home with him, but he left them. Uh, I don't think, Barbara, you'll know details, I don't think she actually has ever looked at them, has no, she? she never has. She wanted them, though, she told us that in case, this is before we knew he was pleading guilty, if there would be a trial and all of that. So she said, in case this person ever comes up for parole, I want to say, this is what you did to my sister. As much as she didn't get along with Shannon, she still was the protect. She was the little sister who was the protector. Always had been. And um, she wanted to see those. But she had seen... The coroner, the autopsy report, mm-hmm. which had some just kind of fuzzy, not very good uh, photocopies of the pictures they had taken. There were like four or five of them. And she had looked at those. And unbeknownst to us, that had made her physically sick. So she said, I don't need to look at any more. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I was surprised at that because she was so insistent on getting the copy of them. Well, we, we did settle, as, uh, as Barbara says, we, we settled on burying her in Walla Walla, having a funeral in Walla Walla, and then going back to Silver Spring for a memorial service. Um, all of those times were uh, very helpful for us. Um, a time to be uh, reminded of the hope that we'll want to remind ourselves of starting tomorrow with you, uh, a time to be surrounded by family and friends who see us through these dark moments of our lives, and um, a stark and very harsh confrontation with the reality of living in this world, which is not pretty, which is not kind, and which is not fair. Hmm? Hmm. We're more? waiting on a question. We are absolutely open to talking about any of these things that you might like to ask about, uh, or visiting individually with any of you for whom this triggers memories or things you'd like to share with us. H- have we left out pieces of the story that uh, you you want us to finish now before we finish this morning? One, two, please. How long was before uh, he was, it actually happened that he, that he was allowed to get her? How long was it before her body was available to us? Uh-huh. I think we actually, she actually came home on Wednesday. So it wasn't long. They found her on Monday. It just seemed like, yes. like weeks to us. Exactly but right. it was really only about two days yeah. Yeah. So it didn't take them long. I we had a viewing. She was actually able we were able to have a viewing. Didn't think we would at first, but the odd thing was I had to go buy clothes for her. All of her clothes were there and in a crime scene we couldn't get at them. So Hillary and I went shopping for her. Thursday morning and they dressed her and had her ready for Thursday evening. And then Friday was her service at Walla Walla. Sabbath, we don't normally travel on Sabbath, but we did that time and went back to Silver Spring. And then Sunday, just a week 
after her murder, we had the memorial service for her at her church that they planned. I mean, this was important to them. They wanted to do this for her. She was a pathfinder helper and a youth associate youth leader and all that kind of thing. So she was well-loved back there, too. Please. No, there wasn't an ad. She was not selling anything. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Yeah. 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 That that raises a very broad question. The the the, the specific application to Shannon is that we don't know. Um, he has told several stories, and we don't know what the truth is. That's one of the. That's one of the frustrating realities that we've come to grips with, is that truth is so elusive that sometimes we have to just learn to cope with what we know and let it go with that. Yeah. We, we had a number of uh, reporters who were in touch with us and reported on the, on the crime and so forth afterward, some of whom filled in parts of the story because they wanted to write the conclusion so that they could wrap it all up nicely. And uh, some of that was significantly distorted from what we know the truth would would be. And in a couple of instances was a bit painful to us. Um, but we don't know the real story. We do know that one woman, after his picture was shown on television... One woman who lived in an apartment complex about a mile away contacted the police and said, this is the man who followed me home in my vehicle one night, and I was able to get out of the car, run to the apartment, lock the door before he caught me. Um, And the police told us that she had a similar body type and coloring to what Shannon did. Um... So there are some who think he may have been stalking her. He was in and out of that parking lot several times that day earlier before she got home. Uh, He told several stories, one of which was that she was uh, having Bible studies with him, that they were dating, that um, they were dating and she had disrespected him and so he had to punish her uh, and it just got carried away. The first story was he knew nothing about it, of course. So. And, well, and now been. one of his stories in prison is that it wasn't him who killed him, her, it was another person, and he was just supposed to be part of the robbery, and when it was time to pick up things from the apartment, he came and the other man required that he Finish perpetuate some mutilation of the body. And, yeah. But we don't know what the story is. Please. Ephesians 6 fits, doesn't it? We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. That that certainly is what motivates all the evil in the world. Uh, Whether we think Satan has to supernaturally intervene in some cases or not, I'm I'm less likely to attribute all of those things to supernatural intervention. I'm capable of plenty of evil myself. 
as you'll hear on Friday from me, no, Thursday from me. Um, So certainly uh, a person who's not intending to follow Christ is more than capable of perpetuating that on their own. But those evil impulses certainly do come from Satan. Yeah, please. We know that she was killed sometime on Sunday evening. Mm-hmm. She had been out with Barbara's cousin's family during the day. They dropped her off in the evening on Sunday. And by Monday morning, she didn't show up at work and she was found. They found uh, Anthony, well, they found the van very early on Tuesday morning and uh, got a subpoena for his house, search warrant for his apartment, and picked him up, I think it was around 7.30 in the morning. Does that sound right, Barbara? Yeah. On Tuesday morning. Is that what you mean? Very quick work. Yeah. This And this was big news for Washington, D.C. even. I mean, if this was 6 o'clock news several days, and part of it was because the police had done such a good job yeah. finding him, and we're grateful he did. I'm sure that's true. For us, it's been helpful to know. We went one time to a uh, Parents of Murdered Children meeting in Portland, Oregon, where they have a chapter. Uh, And we're in a huge room with nearly as many people as there are here this morning, all of whom had lost a child. And we were among the few whose perpetrator was incarcerated, identified and incarcerated. Many of these people didn't even have a body. Their child just absolutely disappeared. It was horrific. We went away feeling grateful. We had the best of the worst. We really did. Yeah. Please. Have you seen this after Have you talked to him? We saw him, and I'll talk some more about that on Thursday. The short version of that story is that the state of Maryland allows no contact between perpetrators and victims. They won't allow us to write a letter to him. They experimented with it. Uh, I talked with the psychologists uh, at the prison several years uh, later when I was finally ready. And uh, they said they had experimented with that for a while, but it did not work out well, and they absolutely prohibit it now. So it's not an option for us. So we yeah. just saw him at the in the courtroom when he was sentenced. Yes, oh, yes. We, oh, yes, we, we went. We were there. Yeah. Please. I don't know if they if he broke in. There was no sign of forced entry. Which is also extremely strange to us because Shannon let no one, even relatives, into her apartment unless she saw them through the people. We've had several relatives tell us that. And she bawled me out <laughs> once when I was visiting there. Just a few months before, her refrigerator had gone out. She was at work and I was at her apartment to let the refrigerator repairman in, which I did. And she said, Mom, did you just open the door when he knocked? Didn't you call the office to see if he was really coming up there? Hadn't even occurred to me. You know, I'm still a little country bumpkin, I guess. But she had learned the ways of living in a big city and was quite horrified that I'd done that. But, you know, her, her every apartment had an outside entrance, the trash was out where the van had been parked, so if she was emptying trash, uh, the laundry. laundry was downstairs. She would have had to go out and downstairs. There, there are ways he could have gotten a hold of her, forced her in at some way. We don't know. Again, frustrating to not know those things, and someday we'll know if we still care. <laughs> yeah. There was another question. Yes. Thursday morning. You going to be here Thursday morning? Yeah. Good. Okay. I don't. I can't say that I felt forgiveness at that point, but relief. I was glad he was not out on the street to do this again. 
Yeah. Another one, Bud. Final one, yes. Praise God for that. Wow. Thank you. Want to pray? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love and watch care over all of us, even in times of trouble and sadness, especially in those times. We know that you are the one who understands us all the most. And we ask for your blessing as we leave this meeting and continue to worship you throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.